Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is brought to you by CW Sonderoptic. CW Sonderoptic is the sister company to Leica Camera and designs, manufactures, and sells the Leica Cine lenses, including the Leica Summicron C and Leica Summilux C prime lenses. Full lists of films and television shows shot on Leica Cine lenses can be found at cw-sonderoptic.com. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. My name is Ian Marks, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with cinematographer Anthony Dodmantle, ASC, BSC, DFF, about his work on the film Snowden, Oliver Stone's dramatic reenactment of the events that led NSA contractor Edward Snowden to leak classified information regarding the illegal mass surveillance of Americans. Among Dodmantle's notable credits are The Invitation for Thomas Vinterberg, Julian Donkeyboy for Harmony Corrine, Slumdog Millionaire for Danny Boyle, and Antichrist for Lars von Trier. Snowden is his first collaboration with Stone. Our interview was recorded at the 2016 Camera Image Film Festival in Bydgoszcz, Poland, where Snowden took home the Bronze Frog Award for cinematography. And now, on with the interview. This collaboration, I understand, with Oliver Stone was a long time coming. Can you tell me uh, how it came about? Yeah, Oliver, when I was kind of in the more intense part of my life, uh, late as it was in my sort of introduction to making films, but I was like in my 30s when I really started to, late 20s and 30s when I started academically getting engaged in image making and it was still photography and it became film. But around about the early 80s, you know, I'm knocking on 28, 20, whatever, I, I really am learning how, the craft of filmmaking and, and in particular cinematography, which is what I was becoming trained as. And that said, at that time, intellectually, I'm really, the intake of inspiration was enormous for me, and it's, that's, I think, where the foundation is really most important for any individual who's in the learning process and learning to train to express something as a job. Uh, there's, a, there's a period where we were particularly galloping in our knowledge, gathering, and it's actually forming our personalities to a certain extent. And that said, there were some significant directors and pieces of work that were firmly planted in my my brain and my heart forever, and it's anything from, you know, in the film language, we're talking about Tarkovsky, and we're talking about Bergman, we're talking about Hitchcock, but we're talking about Nick Rogue, and we're talking about Polanski, and the French directors. Uh, Fassbender was enormous for me, actually. But then, and he goes on and on and on, Visconti. But in America, apart from the obvious examples of Coppola and Scorsese and Altman, there was this man Stone, and there was a particular period where his films, together with Robert Richardson, I felt were so extraordinary because they were, had visual panache and anger and beauty and provocation and all the things I do love. Uh, they were concerned films. Uh, they were voicing important issues. And even though they were made to some degree within the studio you know, language and within the studio networks and within the studio financing, they really threw the paint on the walls in such a way that many films weren't doing 
obviously Kenneth Anger and you know Stan Brackage and all the the funny Indians were doing what they were doing anyway. And you can always, as an artist, go that way and look at what else is going on. But I found it interesting that Oliver Stone was making these extraordinary products together with his his team, you know, in a certain period of time. And I've never forgotten for that, and always felt, you know, in the later years that I owed him one. Uh, and uh, then there was a period, like in the last 10, 12 years, where he's carried on making films, and he's done a lot of documentary work, and he's re tried to retell the American history, as we know, in the untold history of the United States. And he's worked a lot in documentary, and he's worked with other DOPs, uh, James McGarvey, um, there's a few, Rodrigo, people I love and know. Dan Mendel. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And uh, he's done what he's done. And, for some reason, for me, those films—the films are always events with Oliver, and the performances, I think, usually are the most radically obvious things in Oliver's films. I think the performance he gets out of people is extraordinary. Uh, anyway, and he started to approach me, and we spent time chatting often—not uh, so much on the phone, but email—trying to meet on a project, and it just never happened. Timing was wrong, and I wrote back and flattered and encouraged as I was to the thought of working with Oliver. But those projects weren't the right ones. And, and then along came Snowden, and along came Little Ed Snowden, and along came Citizen Four, and then out of the blue comes Oliver Stone with a, you know, contacting me about this project. And there was no script. And when I met him first time in the Hotel Kempinski in Munich in 2014, November, and I sat and met him for the first time, he shushed me into a corner of a room in silence and, and read out my six or eight emails. It was like a case study. It was like I was in court and I wasn't allowed to say anything. I didn't have the right to defend myself. I had no lawyer with me, barrister. And he just shushed me into a corner in his amusing way and read out every single word I'd ever written to him. And then slowly closed the file on his ADM Dodd Mantle dossier and put his left hand on the leather bound file and said, So, ADM, what's it going to be? You know, 2014. I thought that was highly manipulative, manipulative, very charming. And I was kind of sold. But the script wasn't there, and I had to sort of grovel my way through his partially handwritten notes and thought bubbles and stuff, which is clearly a complicated, complicated, but enigmatically an exciting document in the making, which became the, the script. And the hard thing about this film is, you, you know, it's, it's, we can go into that later, but it, I was saying yes with my heart immediately because I felt it was the project that indirectly fate had had us wait for. I knew it was going to be difficult. It was difficult. I knew it was going to be a hot cake. Uh, and I knew it was going to inevitably uh, split people down the middle of, and for many reasons. I wasn't sure what kind of film we were going to make, but despite my agent's advice to wait and read the script and make the final decision, I was, I was pretty well ready, ready to do it because I felt we owed it to Ed as well. Somebody had to tell that story trying somebody to tell a bit more about him. And I felt Oliver was the right man to try that. Did he say why he wanted to work with you? He kind of just, uh, in, in, in between the shush, you know, ADM, be quiet and sit in the corner, listen to all I've got to say to you. In between all that, he, he openly has written to me and also said that day that, you know, he had wanted for some time to work with me. He just will have said why, because I know him to be quite categorical and quite, explicit in his word, use of words, he's a very eloquent man. So he would have said why, and I should, vain as I am, I should be able to remember, but I can't remember why. But I'm sure he just, like Danny, when Danny approached me on 
one day after celebration and his voice just turned up on my my antique, you know, answer phone late one night in Copenhagen. That was the voice of Danny Boyle post the beach, you know, just this kind of voice of this kind of cult filmmaker man that I knew very little about. It's funny when it happens and it's still funny and it's a mixture of like, wow, the world is a small place and especially as I said to you earlier about Oliver, he meant, meant so, he was one of the, the people that meant so much to me very early in my development. Suddenly, 20 years have gone by and I refuse to accept I've become 20 years older and certainly not 20 years wiser, but there you're suddenly in the space for the man. It's a beautiful life in that way that you get to, through fate, you get to actually work with some of these people that have meant so much to you. He never said exactly why, but he felt this was a project that would be good for us. And he didn't sort of go into sort of dogmatic, categorical comments about it's a documentary or it's this. It wasn't about that. We were just exploring, finding our way. And he was very concerned more than anything else. I think he was concerned about how we could tell this story when you have a project about a man, a story that officially has already been told. You know, the, the world knows where he is and they know why he's there. Uh, as far as a narrative film is concerned, there's no body, there's no car chase, there's no, you know, murdering and stabbings. There's nothing more than a man dealing with a lot of information, and he's now in the history books. That's all. That's all we had, and that's a difficult, difficult thing to realise and maintain some kind of entertainment value. It's informative, but my prescription for a sort of good film is not just information and you know, information and some kind of literal experience, which television could do equally well, or a book can do, is it's sensitising people's emotions. And that varies enormously from the subject matter of the script you're sitting with, and this was never going to be easy. What was the visual approach that you and Oliver came up with when you sat down and started talking about the process of actualising this story? Yeah, so when we started to sit down and try and visualise the film, Finding out, I discover how literal Oliver is and how, though I speak in circles and symbols and metaphors anyway as a photographer, that was quite laborious for him. It was quite difficult for him. And he'd regularly say to me, Anthony, yeah, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't understand what you're saying. Yeah, explain yourself. And I said, well, you know what I mean by, you know, you take a cubist painting and you imagine that building over there. No, what are you talking about? I just don't understand what you're saying. What are you? What? And the people I work with normally understand me and the directors understand me. He didn't, so I had to commence a long, long process of, of uh, which is fine. We do it to a certain degree always in prep and throughout the films, but I had to really visualize almost every thought I had. And I had to start heaving on a, on a uh, tapping on my uh, archive of uh, private images and public images and anything that I felt conveyed anything and just dangle a picture in front of him and say, this is a bit like how my brain's thinking today. And I kind of guided him in, in many ways, I believe, into the way I was thinking and uh, the way I thought perhaps to a certain extent we could inject some visual poetry or whatever it is we have to do into this initially very factual, cerebral, you know, cinematic journey that the Snowden script really was. For me, it was a lot of information. And if I'd, if I'd shot it just without any thought of poetic quality, I could have put every single person, every single scene up against a wall in front of a monitor and just shot them like a, like a Wiseman documentary and the facts would still be there. The film would still be achieved, but I don't think it would have 
too much cinematic quality, and that was my duty to try and find that. And that took place through showing him image after image after image, get to know my head, Oliver, get to know my heart. Uh, how can we visualize this in whatever way? And it's, sometimes it's about a banal thing like a location that we stand and look at in Germany, and you know, which is meant to simulate uh, uh, an underground world in Hawaii, but we try and look at a disused post office in you know, Munich and think, can we make this work? And, and uh, it can be about more about a visual concept, about how do you actually visualize an invisible world of cyber trafficking without the obvious use of VFX, and the, which I think is minimal but beautiful in the film. But I wanted very much to build a bridge as close as possible within a very documentary kind of drama. I wanted to try and plant my own sort of visual aesthetic and colors and texture uh, in whatever way I could into the scenes and into the mood of the film so that when we did pop into whatever VFX passages there would have to be, they didn't stick out like sore thumbs, you know, which is a problem I have with film language generally. I wanted to cohese. And it was it became a it became a sort of kind of you know, this cavern of privacy, this hole, you know, within which Snowden and these journalists uh, abide, you know, for those three weeks in this dark, dark hotel in the Mirror Hotel in Hong Kong. It's about that place and the limitations and the, the dogmatic restrictions of a space like that, drawing the curtains, being locked in, fear, concern, really fearful. And then these excursions out into the world, uh, be it on the streets in Hong Kong or the, the colourful, odd political military state of Hawaii, which in itself is weird, with these beautiful greens and this beautiful sun and this paradise of an island, and you go underground 40 or 50 meters and you've got this underworld of almost like Austin Power, James Bond, intelligence. It's just so bizarre. The world is such a bizarre place. And then to Washington, which is clearly me as a European when I come to Mary, when I come to Washington area, you feel the military, you feel everywhere, you feel the service, you feel the service to the country. It's, it's an epicenter of your security. And, that's interesting too, hard, hard to make interesting visually, but it's something we see in films a lot. And that's why there are spatters of stills, of flags, of, of you know, Virginia, of buildings, government buildings, signage. It's just me seeing with foreign eyes a world that I see, and it's not new. And Oliver's films have always been splattered with that kind of images anyway, with, with Robert, but from JFK. And, but I felt this film needed uh, some meta layers of suggestive imagery to not counter the potential boredom, but to counter the absolutely necessary cerebral bombardment of information that this film was always going always to threaten the audience with. Oliver has to get his facts right. He has to get it. He can't really throw too much factual stuff out because he's, he wanted really to try and, whether he's done it or not, I don't know. He's obviously clearly a provost still. He's, he doesn't hide his politics, but he's tried to make this case study as neutral as possible and I think he's trying to step back a bit and almost restrain himself and let the audience for good or bad try and place themselves emotionally in that situation what would you do if it was your son what would you do if it was you and that is quite a restrained film in many ways compared to some of the earlier stone films I've seen the film is seasoned with these flourishes characteristic of your style and and and, and of his style as well uh, things like video projections trick filters trick lighting I particularly love the moment when Edward pours a pot of boiling water into a bowl beneath the lens and you use the condensation on the front element to create the sense of a, a cloudy mind. Uh, what directed these choices, these kinds of choices? 
I think, you know, to take a scene like the, the pastor, the pastor seeing his first epileptic fit, again, I mean, it's such an important, significant fact. Number one, let's just say that, it's such an essentially important emotional card uh, to know that this guy was, and it's, it, it's, it, you, can't, you can't suppose or I can't claim I know the diagnosis, but you, know, you assume in this story that the, the stress he was under and the position he was beginning to occupy and the, t the turmoil he was in was affecting him so badly that eventually it was physically and emotionally and psychologically really damaging him. And that's obviously good for the film in the sense it's good to help any individual try and understand that you know, ultimately that he felt he had no choice if he was going to survive. Uh, so it's also a question of personal survival as well as voicing an opinion he felt for the people of the world. But that said, the pastor scene is um, the first epileptic fit and I kind of thought the way to go there with Oliver was just, um, it just gets subjective as, as subjective as possible. We've kind of planted the seed of their love and the difficulty of maintaining a relationship in a global job. We all know about that one. And, uh, you know, that's just, this is what the film was also about, him trying to keep that relationship together because it's really the only grounding he has. There's a very little reference to his parents. And then this, this, this pressure results in this uh, epileptic fit and it's just basically getting down to the nuts and bolts. It's, um, it's a mixture of plastic bags and steam and front plastic uh, lens babies, uh, my gaffer under my direction periodically pushing lights into the lens hard, steam, pumping steam, just trying to, and steaming up on his glasses, which I thought was quite interesting actually. It's just this really banal, in-camera, Russian cheapskate attempt to just get the audience suddenly away from this very clinical, digital, I wouldn't say clinical digital film, film but there's a, there's a certain clinical, f crisp, correct colouring and texture to the film up to this point, and then suddenly his vision just goes and there's a, there's a this subjective shot of him trying to see his girlfriend in the kitchen and, and then you have a couple of moments where you, where you see through his eyes and then we're out of it and we're into the clinic with the whitewashed nurse uh, and the eye, you know, we, we return to the eye quite a lot, you know, his, his eye, both in connection with the CIA and the intelligence tests, you know, the lie testing and also vision as a symbol. What, what did you call it? You said, is it banal and cheap or is it bold and expressive? Well, they, were, they, all, they almost all begin with B, don't they? Bold, banal, <laughs> banal, bollocks. I mean, uh, it's expressive. That's a good word. And um, consciously and subconsciously in that film, I'm working with a mixture of resolutions and definitions and seriously, you know, very powerful digital image caption, capture systems. What they do is they record the world, they rec record reality and reproduce it. And, and we're making a film about a system that not only um, you know, employs people to protect the world and you know, work in security, work in cyber control and cyber investigation. It, we're also, in, on, this, on a more symbolic level, we're talking about the invisible world of uh, information trafficking and how do you visualize that and it's all techno it's all geeky it's all strange it's all very unorganic it's invisible cyber not warfare it's just information traveling and how do you visualize that it's for me it's just using paintbrushes and ideas it's kind of thin and tinny and sharp and dangerous and clinical and so i think something inside me 
in certain emotional scenes wants to go harvest green or gentle or poetic and soft and steamy just to counter that world. You understand? I'm just thinking in paintbrushes at the moment. And so Hawaii, which is for me an odd concept that it's one of the major military states of the USA and way back to Pearl Harbor. And you have these areas of, you know, high nucleus of, of you know, people working in the business, in the military business. And uh, under these beautiful camouflaged, you know, fields of, you know, pineapple trees and got avocados or whatever and beautiful mountains and setting suns, these blissful colours of Hawaii and underneath this surface you've got this strange clinical world of industrial sabotage and protection and all the stuff that we have to do. Heaven and hell. Heaven and hell and you know so if you think about the, the section of the film on Hawaii, it, you know there are these yellows and reds and greens hues of, of Hawaii and the wind blows and it's hot and they look quite healthy and he's got a bit of skin colour and then you know, the lift just goes down a few floors and you're in this kind of almost strange tinny cyan screenage, you know, and maps of the world and heat maps of Syria. And it's really odd. And I've actually had a couple of people speak to me about this film, that, not implying negatively that it's James Bond meets, you know, Citizen Four. It's not that, but it does actually come across a little bit when the film jumps in topographically and in linear time, it, it does slightly become highlighted and I think I haven't done it consciously but I think um, through my grading and then the final colour work I do on the film I've kind of enhanced that a bit to it's, it's not titillation or it's not fighting a story that's not working or anything like that. it's nothing like that it's just like painting uh, the oddity of these contrasting worlds and I think that's been quite an issue and the texture thing back to the epilepsy is one thing it's working with texture and clarity and lack of clarity in imaging, and in you know, to, uh, so you know, he's understanding more or less. Or he's trying to see through a world to something else. That's something a photographer can play with in the way you visualise a film. And I think there were these territories of super sharpness and visual information, and there were these territories of fog, not literally fog, but like inhibited vision, which is maybe a reflection on what I'm trying to imply is the state of of Ed Snowden's psyche. You know, through the story. Can you tell us a little bit about these different formats that you used? I, on this film I used um, a few formats. I shot about 60 terabytes, whatever that means to people, but I shot quite a lot of material on the, the Alexa 65, which is a, a massive beast of a camera, a beautiful sensor, and it's a, a wonderful imaging system combined with the old large format lenses and you know, the, what you actually acquire in, in way of detail and texture is just potentially beautiful and also horrific if you do it in the wrong way. It's just a lot of imaging coming through. I shot a lot of the film on that. Uh, that's to do with texture, it's to do with clarity, uh, it's to do with magnifying in some situations certain uh, scenes that are, uh, take place on screens and stuff like that where I just wanted super contact to the screens. It's hard to photograph the sort of buzzy electronics of a plasma screen or a computer screen is actually not very visual and it's quite frustrating and it's bubbles and there's disturbing wavelength issues and so on but I found with the large format camera it's actually interesting going to that world. Still not for me visually exciting but it helped me to sort of explore it in a new way because of the massive amount of detail and processing. So you can actually go into the blinking cursor and, and then maintain the detail of that on the large image screen. Same thing applies with the scene between uh, Ed Snowden, halfway down the line, where he's lied, and Corbin, his employer-stroke father, uh, knows he's done so, and I wanted to hyper 
realise this, this image of his employer, his boss and his father by using, again, super high-definition imaging and, and have them play, play the scene off to each other simultaneously without green screens and blue screens and cutting. I wanted them to have each other in real time, so I set the scene up with uh, Rhys Iffens, who plays Corbin, the CIA director, with a camera playing with it as if it's a webcam, but it's a bloody great Alexa 65 on a, on a well-oiled slider so he can move it around as if it with one finger but it's actually that massive camera and that's pumped down the line to this second location which we're shooting simultaneously where I am with Ed in the cinema screen and he plays it off and it's pumped in big arguments for the production to get that done but again to cut a long story short that was number one to facilitate good acting and number two to sort of not knowing exactly what risk would do. He's a method actor, you leave him alone, you give him the ideas. I gave him the tools he could play with. I said, you can use this as a webcam, it's a big thing, but he understood. And there was this moment or two where he suddenly pulls that camera towards him and it's so smart, it's not rehearsed. He just knew it could do it. And I said, use it, that's why I've set this up for you. If you want to play with this risk, play with it. And he did. And people have reacted enormously to that. Some people say cartoons, some people say, oh my God, some people laugh. But laughing is a good thing in the cinema because it means you're dealing with it in a different way and it's taking you out of the, the monotony of a, what a film can be. So really pleased about that. That's an example of where the information level through different image capturing systems can work in different ways on the psyche of the audience. So I shot on the A65, I shot on the open gate Alexa, you know, uh, which is a great camera too. I shot on uh, for, for some situations where I had very, very little space, like in the, the hotel build of the set, very little space. It was built down in size and in an annoying way like Lars von Trier would have done on Breaking the Ways for Robbie Muller, you know. And I shot a lot of that on a kind of steady camera rig, which I used myself, a body rig with a... Uh, I was using the C500 Canon. I was using the Mini from Arri as well. It was in, I work a lot with Arri and I'm developing that camera and it was in work in progress, so I was using that. And I also shot further down the line some of the shots on these sort of 2K smaller not lipstick cameras, but surveillance cameras, because again, surveillance cameras had, ha I had, a, had a space for me in this film, and some of the material's fallen away, but there is, there's a feeling of that in the film. I also shot quite a bit of material on DSLR, with, my, with a PR mount with my own primes, and I shot a lot of the last section of the film, both with and without Oliver, traveling with Ed, uh, where we were just, grabbing situations which are of inferior quality but they have this certain feeling of immediacy and struggle which is emotionally a good extra injection, emotional injection to put into the palette at the end of the film where, Oliver, where Ed is actually on his own and the world is very keen to know how he's feeling, what he's doing, anything is important at the end of the film because that's the territory that the world doesn't know much about. So I kind of, whether it's a conceit and a dangerous conceit or not, I use quite a lot of differing format work on the last 15, 20 minutes of the film, uh, just to kind of impregnate um, instability, I think, in the mind of the audience. Were these always creative choices, or perhaps due to the somewhat unorthodox nature of the production, practical choices as well? The only practical choice I made, honest practical, it's not even economic, but a practical choice I made about the film was a debate I had to have with Oliver, who'd never shot digital before, and that was, should we shoot on film or should we shoot on digital? And we had a good potential collaboration 
in front of us with Munich, Ari, a fantastic team of people in Munich, very helpful, very, I mean, they're serious scientists, you know, and they're working high-end development of imaging, as indeed Panavision now as well, but Ari is serious down there. It's, it's the mecca of Ari. Great people right down the line. And uh, the choice we had to make very early with Oliver, with me, I don't think it's why I was hired, but uh, it was, to, should we shoot film or should we shoot digital? And we had this potential, exciting potential of working with the 65, which of course I was interested in, if it was the right, I didn't know it then. Now I know it's a camera I could use for anything, but um, then it did seem very interesting as a tool when I was gonna make a film about definition and resolution and information. Uh, so we pretty quickly came to the practical decision that we should not shoot on film, because traveling around the world, you know, at high speed, 19 days, it's, hard. it's great in one way that you travel with a film camera or two and that's, there's, a, there's a compact element to that which I adore with film. Less cables, less shit. But on the other hand, uh, getting it developed, controlling it and verifying it and approving it and feeling safe with the material you have was a real issue with film because there were not so many labs. and We'd be sending material around, it was dodgy. We were working with potentially political volatile material, security issues, lots of stuff. So that was a very strong argument to go digital. So I debated with myself for a while whether I should shoot the, the control stuff in the studio in Munich on film and then travel on digital, and that didn't seem to warrant itself here. So I just chose digital. And from then on, the process that from then on of what cameras I used and why was very much a sort of intuitive process that I have in you know, collaboration with Oliver, but he doesn't get too involved because he's not that interested. As long as the images look okay and they, they interweave and intercut, then it's fine. And I sat and watched this film, you know, with Ed Lackman on my left and I think uh, Saracen on my right and some techie qualified DOPs, you know, in the row next to me and I had Ed mumbling about formats in my ear, you know, from under his hat. And it, it became evident to me like in the first three minutes you've seen kind of six or seven formats, you know, and I don't think about it any longer. If I don't think about it, I certainly think about it when I'm preparing the film and shooting it and so do my camera guys. but. If I'm not thinking about it or being affected by it in any way but positive when I see the film, then I'm happy. That means it works. I, I hope it works. The, the majority of the, your audience out there who's watching this movie is not going to be so sensitive to that kind of thing, especially as long as, as they're drawn in, as long as, long as, they're, as, long, as long you want them to. Unless you want to draw them like in JFK, for right. example, that was about Natural Born Killers was all about that. That was very interesting. On that note, I find it interesting personally. I find it fascinating that I shot two very, very similar scenes uh, about interrogation or questioning, you know, around the eyeball and, you know, close to Ed, Joseph as a character. And one of the, one of the scenes is shot on the Alexa 65 with a, you know, high-end setup and macro. And one of the scenes is shot with a, I mean, literally, a two for a penny surveillance camera placed, you know, super, 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 and in, as far as resolution and, you know, aesthetic experience is concerned, I, I don't think one is better than the other. You're talking about very seriously different image capture tools, but I don't think you can really separate them from each other. Well, especially if they're being used in a really, again, expressive way. There's the scene uh, in, in the hotel where uh, Melissa, Melissa Leo, uh, plays Laura Poitras, is holding her documentary camera, which is very clearly a lower resolution camera. The color is a bit more desaturated. It looks like um, 
the quality, the, the, the digital. Four. Yeah, it looks like Citizen Four. And then Snowden, he walks to the door. He thinks he hears someone outside. He pokes his head outside the door, and suddenly we're back to an Alexa. We're back to a cinema camera. We're back to high definition. You are exposable, yeah. And then he pops his head back in, and then immediately we cut back to the documentary camera. And it just feels, it feels natural. Like you don't question, you understand that they're different formats, but you don't question the validity. It's, when, you, when you mess around with, in storytelling with formats, there, there are some very obvious story windows for me in this film that are quite you know, innately allow me to do, and I think most DOPs would have considered that, like the scenes with Melissa Leo playing Laura Poitras that she, she films a lot of the stuff herself, as we know she does. We all know season four, it has a certain look. I didn't want to replicate or imply, you know, this is Laura's film, but there's a certain uh, definition factor there and, and a creative license to play with the formats. And there are examples in the film where it's very obviously easy to do that in the same way if there are scenes where you want a surveillance camera and imply that. I do that sometimes, but I think that's one thing, that's the log logistical grounds for doing it, but I actually am more titillated and fascinated by emotional usage of cameras like that. I, I love it when artistically we, are give, we give ourselves the right in, in cinema to play with what I call the paintbrushes in, in different ways, sometimes seriously radically different ways for artistic and emotional reasons. I love it when it works. And maybe it doesn't always work and you're never going to win the whole world over. I did this with Rush, and a film about motor racing, and I just wanted to personify the extraordinary sexuality and devastatingly dangerous, you know, uh, energy of a Formula One racing car. It's, you know, it's like a coffin on wheels. And I wanted to get the audience into that car in any way I could and really fucking feel the sex and the death and the close contact to anything between orgasm and, you know, being decapitated. And the way I explore that, apart from many more conventional ways, which you have to do in a Ron Howard film and, a, you know, an entertaining film, was by, you know, sort of, sort of, sort of I was kind of deforming these cars into, into and rebuilding these cars at the high end, you know, pieces of engineering and, and placing recording mechanisms inside them and around them that then became alive in a completely different way than like a, an incredibly expensive stabilized head on a, on a camera crane could do, you know, they can do that. And you can do amazing shots at speed with fantastic technology and we actually had the budget to do it, but I ended up going for these physically primitive uh, recording mechanisms mixed with other stuff on the cars to get the audience to feel that. It was all about emotion. It was all about really primal, fundamental, emotional, sensitizing systems, you know, for the audience. And, this is a far more, Snowden is a deeply, much more, the pace is down, it's not Formula One, you know, information moves fast in the cyber airwaves, it doesn't, it doesn't move as an exciting a, a way as a Formula One car around a racetrack with lots of girls in mini skirts and champagne bottles, it's, so it's a whole different palette in Snowden, it's, it's a silent, evil movement, momentum, you know, prevalent in the Snowden film, it's not like Formula One. And that mean, meant my, to work emotionally with cameras as I do, I had to be, I had to know how to camouflage it. I had to know how to do it subtly, hopefully not, to, not too much in a vulgar way. Now, mass media is, is also a part of your palette uh, in this film, in the way that it, um, it, uh, it's used to abstract these large chunks of information and, and exposition. 
um, did you have a hand in, 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 in its use in this way? There, there, are two, there are several elements to the Snowden films regarding mass media and information. It's, obvious, it's about information and lack of information and, and disinformation, but uh, ultimately we, when we get to the, the release area, we, we're always going to know we were going to see these Times Square images and these incredible images that we've seen of the real Snowden, his face bubbling up on all these buildings everywhere. And of course we played around with that and played with that orgy of light and techno information and put, put Joseph up there and it was fun. And Joseph personally loves one of these pictures in the, in the release campaign in America of himself up on Times Square, it's massive. 10 floor imaging you know, of him, it's, it's fascinating. But that's what it was like. So on one layer, it's obvious that we did that because that's what it was. The world was an orgy of Ed Snowden blasting across all the airwaves. It was, and that comes across in the film quite well. What is also, what's more sophisticated and more silent and more evil and more clandestine and much, much more difficult for me to visualize is this under the surface, perpetual trafficking of, of noughts and dots of, you know, of a digital grammar and syntax that's moving information, you know, about everything from your inside leg measurement, you know, to your love affair in, you know, that lovely unforgettable weekend, clandestine weekend in Greenland, to political conniving and gun running and who can we blackmail next and all this stuff that is, you know, put into the pot purée of this film. That's another visual aspect of the film which is kind of justified to a certain extent why feel we can pop in and out of different formats at certain moments in time like if, for example Ed Snowden leaving the hotel for the first time and walking down through the streets getting out is a, a potpourri of, of traditional storytelling and long lens and there's zooming which is slightly homage to conversation in the 70s then I pop in the black and white stills which I planted in the earlier stages of the film with the girlfriend so it's just another you know storytelling you know, device that you know the audience are now familiar with, and it kind of reminds you this is history. You know, suddenly freezing a still and then going to live action and then going to a still. It's just reminding the audience this is what this is real life. This is what happened. This is him going there, traveling past the journalists and the black and white imaging time slice of just him traveling through the journalists. You know, it's mixing formats and playing. There's some inexplicable stuff that's not, it doesn't, it has its logic to me. That's not necessarily the same logic to the editor and to Oliver, but if it works, it works. And it's fun for an editor and for a director to have this stuff, to put it in and see does it work. And Oliver has, you know, previously shown that he's a maverick of open mind, of open mindedness to this kind of cinema, going back to U Turn, going back to JFK and Natural Born Killers. So I knew he could, he could play with it. Again, back to my first comment, it's never going to be and was never going to be the momentum tour de force, epic kind of cinema quality of those earlier films because we haven't got that kind of drama. It's more silent and more sinister and more slow. But that said, we squeeze it in. So multi-coverage of Snowden images, you know, technology, the whole allegory of the film of this bombardment and orgy of so much information of this one man suddenly, you know, it's out, it's viral, it, it's out there, it's out there, they say, the actors, you know, well done, Ed, you've done it, you know, and he did it, yeah, it's kind of really cowboy stuff, isn't it? But that's, yeah, there were a few lines in that film that were, you did it. It's a release at that stage. He's not released, but it's a release for the audience. Right, in, in the Opera Nova main screening room, it seemed like 
as soon as he started to walk out of that, that NSA bunker, people, people started laughing, and I wasn't sure if they thought it was corny or they were, they were being cynical about something, but then... They were being But as, 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 the, as the film yeah, rolls to its up. conclusion, I get the sense that people wanted to see him succeed. I sat in that same screening as you with Snowden here in Poland, and uh, I'm obviously hypersensitive to it because I'm part of it. And I'm sitting with some pretty qualified people around me, but I actually pick up much more on the on the simple student, young kid, obvious reaction, the same way when I'm sitting watching a film in Cuba and people get up out of the seats and eat ice creams and kiss and snog and then walk out and have a pee and come back. I like that kind of overtly obvious reaction to what you've done. And uh, the screening was quite alive, actually, compared to a couple of others I've experienced. It was less subdued and I don't know, I think there was a need to be released. He's not, he's the only one that's not released, but I think there's a need for the audience to feel some kind of release towards the end of the film after this absolute, sadly necessary, but bombardment of Oliver's facts, you know, for a large part of the film prior to that. And it, it when people start to titillate or giggle, some, some people get cynical, but I've known enough about myself to know that sometimes an initial potentially cynical comment or ironic comment it's still a comment, it's still a reaction, and that's the important thing. It, what you do quietly when you go back home and sit on the loo and have a think about it again, and as long as people are dealing with something, that means it's communicating, and it, that's all I really care about. Right, if there's no reaction to it, that's and probably worse than... If there's no reaction, you're dead. And I've done films where there's no reaction to, and it's sad. It's a very lonely place to be. We see early in the film that um, uh, Edward's experience with the NSA has colored his relationship uh, to the nature of, of the camera. Uh, when he sees Laura Poitras' camera, you could tell that he, it, it makes him uncomfortable uh, because of what he's been through. Um, and how has your experience with Snowden affected you, affected your relationship to cameras? Has it, uh, creatively or, or otherwise? I, I think one thing is how the cameras and, you know, imaging systems have affected Ed in real life and how Ed Snowden, the character Ed Snowden, relates to the camera. He didn't have a comfortable relationship with camera and that, that comes very early in the film with the telephones and the microwave and the camera. There was a really quite nice little twist in the end where Laura does give the camera to him. For me, he clearly doesn't want that camera and when you're about to escape a room for the first time, you've got a rucksack on your back and you you're clandestine, you don't really, really want to be walking out of a corridor room with a camera in your hand. So I found, always found that slightly odd. But what we did shoot and does not stay in the film is a scene just shortly after he's left the building and he's been taken to his next destination. Uh, uh, there's a scene where he arrives in this slum area of Hong Kong, which I really like. And there's a scene where I just stayed in the car and he only took the camera that far and he just left the camera on the seat didn't want to have anything to do with it and there was a nice camera where he's shot where he's leaving the car and you're inside the car and he just drops the Laura's camera immediately seconds after she's given it to him. He just leaves it on the seat because that's not what he wants and ironically I do know in real life having met Ed and the world knows this, he does film himself regularly and he only perhaps these days has very few friends so maybe the camera is his friend and he does these transmissions as you know and he educates and talks and so he uses a little camera and he uses uh, a, a, a very old set of lights that he was regularly burning his fingers on so we bought him a set of Dedo lights, that's a good plug for Dedo Vigert, under my sort of leadership we invested in a set of um, 
LED lights so that he no longer burns his fingers on his little lighting setups. So I'm really, I often think that when I occasionally see him on the net and I know he's lit himself and I think, ah, he didn't burn his fingers anymore, which is a nice thing. But I like that little scene that fell through that he left the camera. I've kind of missed that in the film. But that's one thing. Uh, on a more interesting, perhaps, personal level, um, it's had a deep effect on me. I mean, obviously knew about, I know a lot about surveillance and uh, I knew quite a lot about surveillance and these kind of systems before I made this film because I've used cameras a lot. But the last year I've spent in this, this world with Oliver, uh, I have learned an awful lot and understand even less, having learned more. But it's a deeply, deeply complicated, sophisticated world of uh, watching each other and recording each other and, you know, data acquisition. And it is totally out of hand and uh, the film clearly states this. And I'm not saying it, it doesn't have to take place, but it is running wild and I don't know where we're going to end up with all this stuff, but it's chaos. Um, it's very hackable and it's going to give problems ahead of time. So I have been affected by, I've been affected by having the privilege to sit in a room for a day or two with a very intelligent mind. I, there are others, but it's, it's slightly bizarre to sit there so close to this man who's such an enigma, Ed Snowden, and just see what a simple, simple, quiet little gentleman he is. He's very gifted, he's got a very bright, you know, IQ, he's a, he's a fast thinker and he's clever and he's creative because he's created these programs, but, you know, he's caused a hell of a lot of noise, considering he's one of the quietest little men I've ever met. How can you create so much noise and be so, so teeny-weeny and quiet and gentle? That's incredible. Now, if he can do that, what can, a, what can a person or a force do to the world who really does want to cause noise and damage? It's terrifying. So I've thought a lot about the kind of world we've tried to explain a bit more. I did have pieces of plaster on my, my computer and for some reason only recently took that off. Uh, we know about the back door, the back window, the, you know, the, you know, we know about the security ability to use people's devices to find out, we know about GPS, we know about locating, you know, we know about all that and it's there and the world has changed and, and I have changed in my own little way according to that and I just have this particularly personal special uh, place in my life now having spent time with Oliver and making this film for good or bad and spending time with the man himself it's been very special to me and I'm affected forever more about it and I sometimes rant on about it when I'm back in my little Copenhagen Scandinavian you know cozy home with my kids and you know I'm ranting on about cameras and recording and cyber warfare and stuff and it's obviously I've changed we change all the time I'll learn to live with it I'll learn to deal with it and I hope my kids do too but it's uh it's a different world. Anthony, thank you for ranting on about it with us today. <laughs> I really appreciate it. It's been such an amazing uh, oh, experience to have rant, a conversation with you about Ranting's this. good. Yeah. I rant and I rant and I, I mumble and I burble and Oliver would have enormous sympathy and empathy for you. It's been a real pleasure. Ah, I really enjoy it, man. That was cinematographer Anthony Dodd-Mantle talking about his work on the film Snowden. Thanks for listening. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.